Hello, and welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, the podcast where you can hear all about evidence-based child health summarised neatly and spoken to you so you don't even have to do any reading. It's really quite good. Well, I have to say that, Donna, because it's me that's doing it. Anyway, what we do in this podcast is we take a clinical question or two that real people have generated. They've gone away and they've undertaken an evidence-based approach on it. That means they've thought about the clinical scenario and turned that into a structured clinical question. That question has then been used to go out there and find some information that might be available to answer it. They've appraised that evidence, looked at its strengths and its weaknesses and come up with a conclusion that is applicable in practice. That process of asking, acquiring, appraising and applying is the sort of the key parts of the evidence-based medicine way of working. Now, we also take the opportunity to think a bit more deeply about something to do with that process. And this month, we're thinking about medical devices. Occasionally in paediatrics, you'll be actively thinking about using a medical device. Though you probably didn't realise it, you're likely to have used a class 1M medical device to auscultate the chest in the last month or maybe even day or so, if you've worked in a clinical environment, or you'll have used a different one to check a blood pressure. So we're making clinical decisions with some of these medical devices, like a stethoscope or a sphygmomanometer. I can still say that word, even after years in peds. And in other cases, we will be thinking about using them for therapeutic purposes. But how can we evaluate? Well, it's like drugs in some ways. Most things that we prescribe, anyway, much of the hard work has already been done for us. Devices are classified in the sort of European market and actually in many other places from low risk, in this case, class 1, e.g. a stethoscope, and that's class 1M for measurement, to the high risk devices, which is class 3. An example of this would be an implantable defibrillator. Each sort of broad class before it's released into our clutches has to get over a series of hurdles and each class adds increasingly difficult ones. For some things, the device needs to demonstrate conformity, that is, that each one is roughly the same, clinical utility, and that could be an indirect thing, for example, with a stethoscope, that it can hear sounds, or it has to be sometimes a very direct demonstration. So, for example, with the high-risk devices, a clinical trial with patients that it actually works, and it also has to demonstrate safety. Now, safety in this aspect has like an engineering and technical aspect. Um, to take a silly example, that the uh, hip replacement won't go rusty. And, and also safety by clinical observation. So that might be in the setting of clinical trials. It might be post-marketing surveillance, like the yellow card scheme that we use for medicines. Except, actually, the yellow card scheme applies to new devices, as well as new medicines. It's just that hardly anybody knows that. Anyway, so we've got these devices, and we've got ways and some degree of security when we are going to use them. 
And then if we want to look at designs and look at those in any detail, like we would with drug studies, well, they are actually basically the same. And so when we're doing our assessment of them, we should do it in the same way. Does the PICO of the study we're looking at match the one that we are intending it to do? What is the risk of bias in those studies? What would the consequence be if our assessment was wrong, both in terms of using an ineffective or unsafe device or rejecting the use of a device that was effective and safe. You see, whilst the device itself might be different than the medicine, overall the thinking process and stuff that sits behind it isn't actually different than the drugs that you prescribe on a daily basis. Our clinical question for this month comes from Aaron, Bell, Camilla, Baker and Amadine Duray at the Department of Paediatric Infectious Diseases in Imperial College in London in the UK. They ask the question, is chest drain insertion and fibrinolytic therapy equivalent to video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery to treat children with a paraneumonic effusion? So the setting of this is a, a, a sort of a, a, a slightly prepubertal kid who presents with five days fever and cross, increasing difficulty breathing, lowish oxygen saturations requiring supplemental oxygen um, fevers, started on broad spectrum antibiotics. And unlike in my life as a paediatric oncologist where the diagnosis would be some sort of mediastinal tumour, in this case, it is a chest X-ray demonstrating alongside an ultrasound a complex effusion overlying lung consolidation in keeping with an effusion on top of a pneumonia. The medical team at this point is then asking the question, is it right to do a chest strain with fibrinolysis or should we move straight to the surgical option of video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery? They went away and they searched. They searched over a range of different databases, yielding 692 potentials. They were screened by two independent reviewers and pulled together 20 studies for the full manuscript overall. A Cochrane review looked at trials up to 2014. Uh, there was a systematic review that went beyond this to 2019 and added an extra review or two. And then extra randomised trials on top of this were put in by the authors. The reviews found on the whole that when you looked at these randomised trials, primary VATS, the sort of thoracoscopic approach, compared to primary uh, chest strain with fibrinolysis had a slightly shorter degree of length of stay. Small, probably around the half a day range, but probably real in terms of the statistical significance. However, these were very heterogeneous results. That is, the results actually varied a lot from study to study as to what each study said. In this setting, high 
heterogeneity means that we become more uncertain about what the true result would be, particularly if we can't work out exactly why that heterogeneity must be there. When they looked at it in a little more detail, they saw that some of these trials included patients with very low-stage effusions and not very complicated ones. Others made sure that they were really quite complex before they did it. The proportions of patients when they included not just the randomised trials but the, the non-randomised trials suggested that people who did the VATS procedures were more likely to publish and that there were a lot more VATS there than you'd expect. And so you've got to query a little bit in that setting what institution is doing this and, and almost in the hands of a, a, a not person that does it all the time, will that be the same as the other? It's tricky, but pulling all of that together and maybe just pulling down to the more complex end of the market, the authors conclude that, that both chest strain and the, the VATS approach do appear roughly equivalent in children who have a moderately complicated effusion that actually requires drainage. But in the same breath, it could be that if you go down the VATS line, you actually end up with less need for second sorts of interventions. And that, I guess, sort of makes sense in that you've had a good go and cleared everything out in the first go. Practically, what does that mean? I guess if you don't have access to VATS for whatever reason, then it's perfectly reasonable to go down the chest drain line first. If you do, then it's reasonable to pull together and have a conversation with your surgeons, your respiratory doctors and your patient and their family about which they would prefer, given all of the information. What do we need from you? Well, we need you to share, like, tell your grandma about this podcast, obviously, and make sure that it flies up the podcast charts to be the greatest evidence-based podcast in the BMJ stable. Apart from that, we want you to wonder about what clinical questions have I had and, and could I potentially enter one of these Archimedes things? And then when you've wondered about it, crack on over to the Instructions to Authors website and find out exactly how to see if your Archimedes is worth progressing. Do drop us a line. We love to hear from you and we will get back to you as soon as you've emailed us and you can listen to us all next month. Thank you for your time.